We're in Numbers chapter 11 tonight. This is sermon number 18 in that series, and not quite sure how many um, how many sermons we'll get out of the book of Numbers, and um, I'm learning a bunch in preparation for these sermons. I think what I'll do is I'll read. We could subdivide this particular chapter a number of dis- different ways. It's, the related theme is what we're going to look at tonight. And I think we will take a couple sermons to get through this. But I, I think what I'll do is I'll read verses 1 through 15. And we're going to look at it thematically under the particular sin in view. And then I think what I'm going to try to do is extrapolate the aggravation of this particular sin along the lines of, I think maybe at Sunday school I mentioned question and answer 151 of the larger, how we aggravate sin. This is a particular sin that's aggravated for a number of reasons, as I hope to show. But Numbers uh, 11, verse 1, hear the holy, uh, blessed word of our blessed God. Now the people became like those who complained of adversity in the hearing of the Lord, And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of them on the outskirts of the camp. The people therefore cried out to Moses. Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died out. So the name of the place was called Tibera, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. The rabble who were among them had greedy desires, and also the sons of Israel wept again and said, Who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic. Now our appetite is gone. There's nothing at all to look at except this manna. Now the manna was like coriander seed. Its appearance was like that of bedillum. The people would go out and gather it, grind it between two millstones and beat it in a mortar, boil it in a pot, make cakes with it. Its taste was as the taste of cakes baked with oil. When the dew fell on the camp at night, the manna would fall on it. Now Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, each man at the doorway of his tent. And the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly, and Moses was displeased. So Moses said to the Lord, Why have you been so hard on your servant? Why have I not found favor in your sight, and you've laid the burden of all this people on me? Was I who conceived all this people? Was it I who brought them forth that you should say to me, Carry them in your bosom, and as a nurse carries a nursing infant to the land which you swore to their fathers. Where am I going to get meat to give all this people? For they weep before me, saying, Give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to carry all this people because it is too burdensome for me. So if you're going to deal this way with me, please kill me at once. If I have found favor in your sight, and do not let me see my wretchedness. Wow. Wow. Let's pray. Uh, Lord God, um, we're amazed at a man who you say is the meekest man in all of the earth. And he, fe- he speaks um, face to face with you, mouth to mouth. And um, a-, a prophet with the most intimate of relationships with you. And here he is, Lord, coming to the end of his ropes. Uh, Father, for us, uninspired uh, people, servants. Uh, Father, how many times have we um, complained like this? Have mercy upon us, uh, uh, forgive us, uh, change our uh, complaining into rejoicing. And may we learn a hard lesson from our fathers and mothers in the faith. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. This is a simple passage. Um, 
I think this morning's passage was simple, but it was a heavy passage. This is a simple passage, and it's a sad passage, and um, it's it's an exceedingly convicting passage. (laughs) This is a convicting passage for me personally, I guess full disclosure. Um, This is about God's people grumbling and complaining about what God has provided for them. I think hence the title, the title of my sermon, God's people complain about God's provision, and actually what they're complaining about is God. And they're grumbling and complaining about uh, God. Um, And God is quite displeased with the sin of grumbling and complaining about uh, God. I want to first explain what complaining or grumbling or murmuring is. It's very basic. We'll understand it. But I think it bears just maybe a word or two of explanation what this particular thing is that they're doing. The, The notion of complaining is that we are expressing some kind of dissatisfaction or discontentment with something. So we're not satisfied and we're not content. Hence the reading of the the 10th commandment. And then to complain of something is to express grief with that thing and or anger and in unhappiness with the thing or the one who dispenses the thing. So just think of that. Expressing grief even anger and unhappiness, dissatisfaction with the thing and with the giver of the thing. That's what's going on. The grumbling or the murmuring idea is what we saw this morning, is that what James says is when sin is not nipped in the bud, it's a fruitful thing. It grows. It goes from the infantile stage and it will get bigger, quantifiably worse and quantitatively worse. And like that, the Apostle Paul experienced verbal abuse and then physical assault. And when we inwardly are dissatisfied and angry with God's government over our lives, eventually that's going to come out of our mouth. And so that's the progress. Remember, we're talking about sin, which complaining is a sin. We'll talk about that in just a bit. But the aggravation of it, the way that we make sin even more ugly. And the reason it's so convicting is this sin is easy to do and you don't quite feel the same conviction as, say, immorality or even cursing or something like that. It just seems almost ordinary or regular to grumble and complain because life is difficult and life is difficult. And we don't quite see the ugliness of it like we would see with some of the grosser uh, forms of sin. But it's so prevalent it, it makes it especially convicting when we actually slow down to look at it. But, but the idea of grumbling and murmuring is that heart dissatisfaction when we are dissatisfied or discontented with anything. Sometimes we don't connect it to God's government, but we should. But when we have that internal dissatisfaction, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12, what's in our heart will come out of our mouths. Even if we're very good, let, let, let's just say we have a measure of sanctification. We know that we shouldn't say what comes out of our mouth. Psalm 73, the Psalm of Asaph. Asaph was really inwardly complaining. Why do the unbelievers have it so great and the believers have it so non-great? But then he said, if I were to say thus, he kept it in himself, but he was, he was internally murmuring but he knew he didn't want to say it 
because he would cause other people to stumble, stumble by his expressing it. But ordinarily, left unchecked, sin grows. And ordinarily, the sin that we have here in our head or our heart in context here, dissatisfaction with something in our life, we're going to say it. People, there's going to be no guesswork. You, you will, they are clearly angry with what's going on because you're going to say it. That's the growth of that particular sin. And it makes it more, it makes it more ugly to God and more harmful to ourselves and more harmful to um, other people. Now, the inference that's related to dissatisfaction and discontentment with God's government in our, in our life is comparison. There is a common statement. I don't know whether it's attributed to um, Teddy Roosevelt or Churchill. Some, I, I read a lot of maxims. And it's, it's something about the, that, um, that um, comparison is the thief of joy. Have you ever heard that? It's one of those two guys, I think. Comparison is the thief of joy. Well, comparison is also related to this dissatisfaction or complaining or discontentment. The notion is our neighbor has a good thing that we don't have. Therefore, we're going to complain about it. That's exactly what these folks are doing. So we're comparing. And we, we say the good that they have, I don't have. And the good that they have, I should have. That's key. Should. I deserve this thing. I, I, this thing is required to me. And the implication is somehow the governor or the dispenser of these, these good things has given me short shrift. You see that. God says in Ephesians 1.11 that he governs everything according to the counsel of his will. So if I broke all my molars, which I did, you have 12 of them, I'm a grinder and I broke them all. So I have no real molars, they're all fake. If I say, look at you with all your natural teeth, <laughs> look at you, and I, why do I have porcelain teeth and you have real teeth? Grumble, grumble, grumble. I should not have broken my teeth and I should have your teeth. I am saying to God, you have done wrong to me and I deserve what you gave them. We're flipping the whole thing of creature-creator completely on its head. We're flipping the whole idea of Lord, servant, father, child on its head. And we're forgetting ourselves. And so if our neighbor has a thing, a good thing, that we want, we are taught the inference that we should rejoice. And then not only do we compare when our neighbor has a good thing, we compare when our neighbor doesn't have a bad thing or an afflictive thing that we do have. Isn't that right? Why do you not have this massive thorn in your flesh like I have? Why do you not carry the cross that I carry? And that may be true. The comparison may be accurate. You might be accurately portraying your cross is bigger than their cross. They do carry a smaller afflictive load than you do. That may be true. We're still not allowed to question the government of God in it. But I will suggest this to you. So I've been here 22 years as your minister. And so one of the neat things about being a minister is you invite me into your life and then you share your life story. I would not trade places with 
other folks. And I'm not picking on anyone. God gives individuals our individual lives with the easier days and the harder things individually. He just gives them. Sometimes outwardly, folks don't look like they're carrying a cross until you talk to them. Is that right? So we could look at one another and say, why is your life so easy? I had it so much better when I was a slave. I deserve something better, like my neighbor. But maybe if you go to talk to your neighbor, your neighbor could say to you, if they could say to you, here are all the various things that I deal with. Here's my mom, here's my dad, here's my son, here's my daughter, here's my health, here's my marriage, here's my cross. And we don't know any of that. So the grumbling, the dissatisfaction, the discontentment, it grows, it comes out of our mouth. It's, the, it's, it's a scourge of comparing. It's kind of a repudiation of God's moral government. This is what's kind of going on. I do want to say something about the sinfulness of complaining. We talk about the sin of omission or commission. Commission is obviously doing something that God forbids. Don't complain. That's a sin. And then omission is, is not doing something God requires. Be content. So it's kind of, that's why we, we read the, from the catechism, both the positive duty and the negative duty. I want to read just a few passages to, to, to show us that what's going on here, again, we're just looking at this thematically with Israel grumbling and complaining about the hardships that they're experiencing in the, in the wilderness. And I have no doubt there were hardships that God considers it to be sin. And I say this for this reason. Oftentimes people, well-meaning people, Christian people, we can take a thing which God will say is sin, and then if we can change the definition of the thing, we can make it not a sin by changing the definition. Again, we're forgetting ourselves in that. So if God calls, say, drunkenness a sin, then it's a sin, not a character defect or so on. And I'm not saying that we can't have inclinations passed to us constitutionally from uh, our lineage. We certainly can. But I, I want to read a few things where the Bible clearly says, this is, again, not guesswork, that being a grumbler or a complainer, again, true confession, I, 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 I might have complained a time or two in my life. And boy, howdy, this is convicting. Because God directly says, don't do it. It displeases me. And it's not truthful. Because God, as I say, I said this morning, Paul was suffering affliction. But I did say, when we're able to honestly assess our lives, I do believe that most of us, if we were honest, would say the easier, more pleasant days are more frequent than the harder things that God puts in our lives. Again, if we are able to be honest. Exodus 16. In the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. This is the reference, the historical reference of what we're looking at. Because he has heard you grumbling against the Lord. What are we that you grumble against us? This is literally Moses and Aaron saying, you want meat? God will give you meat. This is the grumbling. And Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat in the morning, bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling, that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. That's Exodus. That's the historical um, background of our passage. Then Philippians, the New Testament, do all things without grumbling or disputing. James 5, 9. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. 
Behold, the judge is standing at the door. That gets at that idea of God is the moral governor of our lives. So if he, he sends a thorn or a painful thing, he sends it. If he sends a pleasant thing or takes a pleasant thing away, he's the one ultimately that does it. And he's doing it. We would help ourselves against grumbling if we could remind ourselves, what's the passage that's so easily abused in Romans 8.28? All things, you know it. All things what? Okay. That obviously is a true passage. The Holy Spirit inspired it. There's a time and a place to use that passage. If I am going to the divorce court of someone I love, that's not the time to use it. If I'm going to the funeral of a person I love, it's not the time necessarily to use it. We ought to look at that passage and imbibe it and express it with graced wisdom. Sometimes we're not able to see the good of a thing till way further on down the road. Does that make any sense? If we can step back and grow in Christ Jesus, then we could look at the hard times in the wilderness and say, you know what? Those hard things drove me closer to Jesus Christ. I am more greatly conformed into the image of Christ. My son, my daughter, my children, my husband, my wife came to Christ through that hard, hard thing. And then as we remember those things, when we come to another, another difficult, afflictive time, we can reason by faith rather than reason by uh, sight. And we can say, wait a minute. This painful thing is not, is not meant to promote grumbling by me. It's, it's meant to, to purify my faith, to cause me to walk by faith. That's, that's a learning process. And that's what happens when we grow from being babes in Christ to young, mature men and women in Christ, and then to uh, even further mature fathers and mothers in Christ. So we're told not to grumble. And I mentioned 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 14, there's a whole section that calls the ancient Israelites our fathers. We are the we are the we are the spiritual children of Israel. That's why I believe the unity of the church, the Old Testament church, Israel, then it gets opened up to the, to, to the nations. That's one of the reasons why I see the continuity of children in the covenant, but that's another sermon. <clears throat> but in 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 14, it will recount some of the history of Israel in the, in the desert, and it will say, and don't be like them, Christian. And what did they do in the desert? Boy, howdy, they grumbled. They were some grumbling folks. But I can't really look at our fathers and mothers in the faith and say, those are some grumbling folks. Because if you had maybe a microphone, a tiny microphone at the house, maybe even in my office when, when no one was around, or in my car. My car broke down last week, and I might have grumbled a little bit. <laughs> but even that is under the government of God. So we can't say, looky yonder, you lousy grumbler. Because I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure if God has a bug in our house, we might have grumbled or complained or murmured a time or two. And he doesn't need a bug in our house because he's omnipresent and omniscient. But, but my point with that is, it says, don't grumble as they did, and God sent the destroyer to them. So it's a, it's a fairly Lord-provoking sin. And then Jesus, um, in John 6, said the Jews were grumbling against Christ. 
The Jews grumbled uh, about Christ because he said, I am the bread that came down of heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble about among yourselves. Again, my point with that is just to say, when we come to the business of complaining, as a Christian, we can be pretty good at dressing up our sin, right? Well, I'm not really complaining. I'm just kind of complaining. <laughs> we, we try to make our unholy thing somehow holy. I think we, should, we would do better if we were just honest and say, you know what? I am mad with God. I don't deserve what I'm going through. I don't like what I'm going through, and I'm going to pitch a fit. I don't recommend doing that. But I think it's better to be honest rather than to dress it up, which is to play the religious hypocrite. So if you're dissatisfied, God knows you're dissatisfied. If you're discontented, he already knows that too. And it's better just to say, you know what, God? I'm very sorry. The recourse when we sin is not to justify our sin. The recourse is just repentance. It's just to humble ourselves before the Lord and say, Lord, I cannot even believe that I'm grumbling. Please forgive me. And when we do that, guess what happens? What happens? He forgives us. He forgives us. How many times can we sin against the Lord and he'll still forgive us? Seven times 77? <laughs> you don't have a calculator that can count that high. You and I as Christian people can never out-sin the grace of God in Christ. It's not a motive to go sin it up. It's a motive to just be humble. That's the kind of loving God we have. That's the kind of loving Father we have. The kind of loving Christ. And that's what makes us not grumble. So when we grumble and we own our sin, we say, Lord God, forgive me. Lord, I'm looking at the storm. I'm looking at the afflictive providence. And I'm not looking at you. I'm not looking at the blessings. Please forgive me. And please help me. Our God knows our frames. So... It's not a sin to complain. It's not a sin to groan when you're in pain. All groaning is not sin. When you go to a funeral, when you go to the hospital, when you go to the poorhouse, when some hard things come into our life, what's the natural, normative, permitted response? To weep. So expressing pain because you're in pain is not sin. But an inordinate expression of displeasure is sin. And can I quantify exactly for you when we cross the line? No, I can't. I can't quantify it. But there is a line. When we go from weeping because we're in pain to now arguing back with God, you have done somehow something wrong. And there is this line that you can see. When we will not be comforted by the word of God, in the blessings of Christ that we enjoy, and we persist in our dissatisfaction inordinately, it reveals that thing was an idol. We held it too high in our minds, in our hearts. I will say this because it's so silly to me. It's almost embarrassing that this actually did happen to me. So back in 2008, I was at the height of my running. I was running maybe 35 miles a week, 36 miles a week, all in the trails. And so I'm a, I'm a very, 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 very uh, highly wired person. And I don't drink and I don't do anything. And the only thing that would calm me down was prayer and running. And so I thought I was using it lawfully. And um, 
one Sunday in the pulpit, I was thinking as I was leading worship, I cannot wait to get in the woods tomorrow. I cannot wait. I would think about running all the time. And I developed a foot problem on a, on a Monday run, and I was on an eight-mile run, and I thought, oh, I have a rock in my foot. And I went to my wife's uh, podiatrist, and she's a runner as well. He said, I know exactly what's happening with you. You have fat pad atrophy on your metatarsal heads. It means you lost fat pad on the knuckles of your feet, underneath your knuckles. And I said, why is that? He said, well, you're over 50, overuse, and some other things. And I said, what should I do? And he said, well, surgery or orthotics. I said, surgery's out. And I said, what happens if the orthotics doesn't work? He said, take up a new sport. And God took the running away from me. I've just returned a little bit after a number of years. I was absolutely not consolable for a year. I was beside myself. I couldn't understand it. I love my wife. I'm not cheating on my wife. I don't cat around. I don't drink. I don't smoke. All I wanted to do was run, and I would not be consoled. And I have a beautiful wife, I have beautiful children, I have beautiful grandchildren, I love my job. He just took running from me. And I was mad as a hornet for a whole year. It was an idol. And I teach these things, I preach these things. I could write a whole sermon on it, and I failed. It took me a whole year for the Holy Spirit to say, that was an idol. And you're mad at God for taking it away. That's this. So the people of God greatly aggravate their sins, and sometimes we don't recognize it till later. Um, but we should be careful. God is in the idol taken away uh, business. And so complaining, as I say, and grumbling, is a manifestation of idolatry. That something has too high of a position in our life. I'm not saying you can't love your kiddos, your grandchildren, your spouse, or, or all of those things. We should legitimately do that. But nothing should take the place of our God in Christ. Nothing should be higher. And the other thing that we see, again, thematically from this complaining, is that it's infectious. It harms our neighbor. And when I say our neighbor, I mean the people that are around us. Um, who are the people that we hurt most, physically and, and emotionally? Who do we hurt most? Most. Our family. is our family. We hurt our family most. And you think, well, wait a minute. Who are the people that we love most? Our family. <laughs> we love our family most. And we're kind of, we can be kind of blasé or neutral towards the, the, our fellow man. Yeah, I don't hate you, but I don't really love you. But my family, I love them, and they drive me bonkers. And I drive them bonkers. But we hurt the people most that are around us most, which is our family. And what we learn here is when one person starts to grumble or one group of people starts to grumble, that complaining goes through their neighbors like a knife through butter. It is very infectious. And this is the Psalm 73. This is why Asaph says, I was mad at a hornet that the, 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 the unbelievers, have a great, they're having a big time. Their, their kids are healthy. Their eyes are so fat. They're, they're bulging. They just have tons of food. And no one's in pain <laughs> Us poor believers, we got the short end of the stick. And he said, I didn't say that because I would depress your people. We don't think that way. And when we're complaining, sometimes we're like the Jerry Springer show. We're going to let it all hang out. You know what? I am dissatisfied and I'm angry and everybody in the room is going to know about it. Right? 
again, if, as believers, unbelief and belief can co- coexist within a believer. It does exist within a believer. This is the uh, uh, Romans chapter 7. This is James uh, 4. This is 1 Peter chapter 2. This is the war of the flesh against the spirit. So we have this unbelief in our, uh, in, in, in our flesh saying, God has given you the shaft. And then we have the Holy Spirit saying, that's not true. So there is this warfare going on within us. When we give vent to that species of unbelief as believers, and we doubt the goodness of God, and we say it, we're harming our neighbor. You remember this morning I said the Puritans would say our spouse is our closest neighbor? Our closest neighbor are, are our spouses, our sons, our daughters, our grandsons, our granddaughters, and our sisters and our brothers, and our mothers and our fathers. We do them positive harm when we grumble and complain and murmur. We could, and what happens is, by that, what's easier to promote? True religion or false religion? What's easier to promote? False religion. Why is false religion easier to promote? Because it can, it can be transmitted naturally. It's the flesh appealing to the flesh. The reason true religion is so hard to promote is it takes grace. It takes, a, it takes a, a, an act of God to do it, to convert a man, to justify, to adopt, to sanctify. We can't do it. God has to do it. Now, he'll use people. But the reason that grumbling and murmuring is so infectious, which it really is, is it appeals to the flesh. And true Christians have the flesh. We have two natures. We have the fallen nature and we have... So I'm not saying that the... Now it could be, the grumbling and the, and the complaining could be an expression of, of an unbeliever, but I'm trying to be benevolent because I'm in a group of believers and we sometimes grumble. It appeals to our flesh, and that's why it's so infectious. And what happens in this group, and what happens when we grumble or complain, oh, you know this is true. Um, I'll say to myself, you know what? I'm not going to tell my wife the things that I'm really grumbling and complaining. Not about her, but just about life in general. Not about just grumbling. And then I'll like, you know what? I'll share. I'll just share. And then within 10 minutes, I've upset her. And she's grumbling and complaining. Why? Because I just dumped a garbage pail of garbage. What's going to happen? Right? So you can take, by our grumbling, we could take a person that is, they're whistling and they're happily contented with their outward condition. And they're thinking, you know, I've got a great life, great wife, great husband, great kids, great job, great everything. Everything's going swimmingly. And then we come along, blah, 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 blah. We take a person that was content with those things, and what do they say? Yeah, we had it so much better back in slavery. <laughs> what are we doing in this wilderness anyways? It was way better back then. Is our causing our neighbor to sin a further sin? Yes. They're doing this. And so, again, we're looking at the aggravation of this particular sin. I've mentioned, I don't even like to say it, but not only is it harmful to our neighbor, it's hateful to the God that we love. It's hateful to the God we love. 
This is why God is so angry with it. He takes it as what it really is, an expression of hatred towards God. Now, no one here in this room would say that. No one. When we grumble and complain or murmur, saying, I am dissatisfied, I'm angry, I'm discontented, none of us would probably say, and I'm angry at God. Probably not. Every once in a while, you'll hear someone say that, which is really frightening. I remember at the death of a person that I loved very much, another person I loved very much said they were angry at God. Boy, that scared me to even hear it. And I was heartbroken over the person that just had died. But that's what this is. And so when you think, why is God so upset? Because he's telling us what this thing really is. It's looking at God saying, you have done wrong to me. You have sinned by sending me something painful or by taking away or refraining from giving me something pleasant. You have sinned against me. You're you're in the wrong. And I am dissatisfied with you. It's absolutely stunning. And when we think about the people that are complaining here in our text, who are the people that are complaining here in the text? They're Israelites. They're Jews. How many years did they spend in slavery? If you say 430 years, you're correct. For 430 years, here's what they said. Oh, God. Pharaoh and his people, they tell us to make bricks without straw. All day long, they try to kill our children, our sons, our daughters. Oh, God, send the Redeemer. Oh, God, save. Oh, God, deliver. And what happens? He does it by his mighty hand. And now he says, I'm going to make good on the promise that I made to Abraham in Genesis 13. I'm going to take you from slavery. I'm going to lead you through the wilderness. I'm going to go before you with a pillar of uh, cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. I'm going to make it so your sandals don't wear out. I'm going to feed you. I'm going to give you water from the rock, water from the rock, which is a picture of Christ, manna from heaven, which is a picture of Christ. I'm going to save you in Christ. I give you all the oracles and the ordinances of God to call in God's people, to save them and to sanctify them. And I'll lead you all the way to the promised land, a picture of heaven. I'll do it. All grace. And what do the people say? Our life is lousy. We have it so hard. I wish we were slaves. Now, this is a gross aggravation of sin. God graced, God graced, God graced, God graced, God's grace. You ever dealt with a bratty child? <laughs> you never gave me anything. And what do you want to do? I mean, we would never do this now because we're enlightened. You would want to... <laughs> I'll give you something. What does God do to bratty children? He actually loves and saves a boatload of bratty children. <laughs> he changes our hearts. Now, it's true enough, he destroys a bunch of these folks, but it's also true that God takes grumbling, complaining sinners, and he saves us in Christ Jesus. But I do want us to see the kind of folks. We can say, if I asked you, count your blessings one by one in Christ. Are there benefits to being a believer in Jesus Christ? In this life, I'll use the catechism language. Do you have benefits in Christ in this life? 
Do you have benefits in Christ on the day that you die? And do you have benefits in Christ on the day of resurrection? Do you? Justified, adopted, sanctified, promised to be, to, to be glorified. You have the, the assurance of God's love. You have the peace of conscience. You have joy in the Holy Spirit. You have perseverance in grace. In the moment we die, as believers, what has God promised to us? Our body is going to rest in the grave until the resurrection. Our spirit is immediately perfected and goes to be with God in Christ. Felicity is beyond imagination. On the day of resurrection, what's going to happen? We're going to get a glorified, perfected body to be joined to our glorified, perfected soul. And we are going to be fitted to the full enjoyment of God forever. And we're going to see Christ forever. That's promised. It's all ours. It's not just in the sweet by and by. Our lives, truly, this is real. We don't have to make this up. Have fallen to us in wonderful places. And we look at all of that and say, man, manna again, water again. It's provocative to our God. But what we're doing is something that Moses does. When we look at, and I'll talk about Moses in just a bit, when we look at Moses, he uses, he refers to himself over and over and over again. This is really at the heart of complaining or expressing dissatisfaction or discontentment. When we went to Calvary Chapel, there was one sermon. I I always haven't been in Reformed churches. The minister gave, he, he said this, the reason that you're so miserable is because you're miserable. <laughs> you're thinking about me. And I remember thinking, it was kind of funny, and it stuck with me. You're just thinking about yourself. Here's Moses, me, 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 he, me, me, me. Here are the Israelites. Me, 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 problem, 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 me, problem. And they're not looking at the They're not looking at the blessings. So one of the ways that we stop our complaining is to to refocus. Wait a minute. Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord to me? Who am I to the Lord? What are my blessings? And honestly assess, physically, spiritually, honestly, do we have a wife? Do we have a husband? Do we have children? Do we have sons and daughters? Do we have grandchildren? Do we have a measure of health? Can we go and come with, to church without being shot at? Do we have a Bible in our home? Do we have more than a can of beans at our house? What's the answer? God has super abundant. But we take our eyes off of that. And then we look at the, the difficulties. And they were grumbling, the text says, as people who are having a hard time. I have no doubt they were having a hard time. They're in the wilderness. They're in the desert. Desert time can be a hard time. But we can't grumble against God, which is what they did. And they were forgetting who and what they had. As I mentioned, it was the Israelites who were enjoying uh, these things. Another thing is there's a group called the rabble among them. This is the mixed multitude of the Egyptian Gentiles that went along with the Jews when they left. They clearly said, wow, this Jehovah is for the, the Jews and against the Egyptians. And they went along with Israel. And they actually provoked Israel to further complain against God. There's a principle in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Bad company corrupts what? If you hang around with grumblers, you could be the happiest, most contented person. This is why I, when, if you know someone who has a good marriage and they're like, you know, I'm going to go to coffee with my friends that just dumped their husband. Please, honey, don't go. <laughs> Mona, please don't hang out with that person that just dumped her husband. 
because she's going to hear a, a steady diet of, you know, my husband was a bozo. Yeah, my husband's kind of a bozo too. <laughs> if we hang around with grumblers and complainers, people who are not content, it's bad company. That's what's going to happen. And so those people were unbelievers and they were not able to reason rightly. They couldn't see the, dip, the good things that came out of the hard things because they were unbelievers and they infected the church. And then I want to speak a little bit about Moses. One commentator said something I thought was kind of funny. It's sad, but funny. He said in the first section, the people are, um, are complaining to God about their difficulty in the wilderness. In the second section, it's Moses complaining about the people. In the first section, it's the people sick of their hardship. In the second section, it's Moses who's sick of the people. <laughs> and I have like, I, I write myself these little funny notes. Someone, um, uh, Moses, someone needs a, um, s- someone um, needs an attitude adjustment, <laughs> which is Moses. And he seems a little burnt out with his leadership role, does he not? And so um, the people are craving meat. He says to God, where am I going to find meat? Now he forgets himself. He's looking at the difficulties. Now they had difficulties being in the wilderness. He had difficulties being leader, uh, leader over these people. These people were grumbling day and night. I couldn't ima- imagine be, being Moses. And he snaps. Now, he is a man who the Bible says spoke face to face with God. Hebrew is mouth to mouth. He says the meekest man in the entire Bible. A true believer, he's in heaven. Remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, he comes down to meet Christ along with Elijah. So here is a saint par excellence. And he snaps. I cannot take these people anymore. I can't take any more grumbling. Lord, just kill me. Just kill me. If, if you love me at all, kill me right now. This is a believer. So sometimes people present the Christian life as, you know what, I'm, just, I'm having the victorious Christian life. Really? I'm always looking for the psychotropics when you tell me that. <laughs> really? You're really living the victorious Christian life? It is all like this? I've never met anybody like that. This is the victorious Christian life. Up, down, Jesus, help me. Oh, Jesus, help me. Here we go. Jesus, help me some more. Here we go. That's the victorious Christian life. And here is a man, a rock star in the faith, and they're complaining broken. There were times earlier when he said, you know what, take, my, take me. If you don't save the people, I don't, I don't, don't kill them. He interceded for a grumbling people. Beloved, all human beings, Christians are human beings. We're not made of kryptonite. You have a limit you have a limit where you've constitutionally, emotionally, spiritually, you can't, you hit the wall and whammo, you're going to sin. And man, he hits the wall. Now this is a sin. We understand his sin, but it's still a sin to say, God, if you love me even a little bit, kill me right now. Have I done something wrong? Now there have been guys, I think Elijah, Elijah, one of them wanted to die. There have been people in the Bible that say, you know what? I just do not want to do this anymore. I just want to go home. That was Moses. And so the problem with the Israelites, as I mentioned earlier, the problem with Moses, is, and the problem with us, as Christians, as believers, we take our eyes off of the Lord. And we don't walk by faith. And we walk by sight. It's, it's, so, it's so simple. I preach stuff I can fix your life in a second. 
This kid picks mine. I can tell you what to do in like a 70-sermon series. It's just, for me, get in the Word. Meditate on the Word. Daily commune with God in prayer. Worship corporately, week in and week out. A picture of the Sabbath in heaven. Join a church. Be with brothers and sisters. Bear their burdens. Share their joys. And look to Christ constantly. And I know it's a kiddie song, count your blessings one by one. I think every mom and dad should teach their kiddos to count their blessings one by one. So when we're older and we're going through those hard times and we are grumbling, the Holy Spirit will bring that to our mind. Wait a minute. Who am I in Christ? What has God done for me in Christ? Where am I going? What's my estate? And then the complaining will go away because we're looking at the, we're looking at the Lord. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.